Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 181. We're going to be interviewing Brenda. How you doing, Brenda? I'm great, Jim. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well, and yeah, I'm excited to have you on. That's a really, I just noticed it. It's a pretty necklace. The blue stands out. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Jewelry is is like a story in itself. It all has a story, you know? Okay. <laughs> there you go. So let's get started. As we were talking about beforehand, my first question is, tell me about your childhood and growing up. Um, My childhood growing up, it's, it's a little spotty. Um. I think that from what I've done in my own recovery and research, that's pretty common for childhood trauma. I can remember um, my parents going through a nasty divorce. I can remember. How um, old were you during the divorce? I was five. And it was about that time where my, um, my father was, had started an affair with someone that lived in our uh, apartment complex he um had a habit of always making me his accomplice I'm an only child of my parents although my father has several other children uh before and since um so my mother was an alcoholic um I do you talk to your father's other children your brothers and sisters not when I was older a little bit but not it was, <laughs> you'll see, <laughs> okay. a little weird. Um, so my mom would leave a lot at the time. You know, I was little. I didn't know. I I don't know what I thought. I thought she was an alcoholic because that's what I was told because I had to, I went to a lot of meetings with her. And to be quite honest, I was very afraid of her. She was very violent when she drank and um, the, um, Sorry. <laughs> the um so the divorce went through. Um, you know, it was the eighties. Things when I think about it now, I'm actually kind of shocked at the way when, you know, I was told to stand up in front of the judge and say, you know, I don't want to live with my mother because she's an alcoholic. Like who who at five even knows what that is technically? I mean, I guess I did from the meetings and the, you know, what I saw growing up, but um so I did that and I got to live with my father um, for about a year. Did and you then want to live with your father? I'm sorry? Did you want to live with your father? Or did I you did want to live with my father. I okay. was a spoiled daddy's little girl. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, you know, you know, he basically used me to hurt my mother. <laughs> you know, um, I couldn't understand mental illness or addiction or any of that at the time when I was young. So to me, she was just this scary person who, when she drank, was very violent. And um, so we were living together and I thought things were going quite well, but something happened where my father had to claim bankruptcy. And then the next thing you know, like 
I'm being dropped off to live with this woman who I've been told is terrible. (laughs) You know, it was, uh, it was rough. It was three schools. Was it it when they said you dropped, you said they dropped you off with who? My dad left me with my mother. He said he had to claim bankruptcy and could no longer keep me. And I had to go live with my mother. So in that year I lived with my mother we lived with my grandparents my maternal grandparents and then my parents decided to get back together this was when I was in third grade and by the time I was in fourth grade she had taken her own life and then not allowed to see my maternal grandparents um for years so I was like 18 and then I could you know it was a lot of Old school Italian um, toxicity, uh, blaming things that just people did that may not have been so healthy. But I mean, I was just a kid. So you're kind of at the mercy of your adults. Um, So uh, I lived with my dad. And by the time I was 13, I was definitely not, you know, I was like going out with my best friend's older brother who was 18. I had drank a few times smoked a little pot nothing major but my dad's grip around my throat was like you're not allowed to leave the house you're not allowed to talk on the phone he started driving me to and from school when he found out I had a boyfriend now this is a I'm 13 um I hadn't that I'm aware of received any help for what had happened growing up and then you know having to stay living in that apartment where was the last time I saw my mother I had a lot of hate and a lot of anger, you know, when people would say, oh, I'm sorry that your mom died. I'd just say, well, that's okay. I hated her. And I, I kept that. So I was like 35. <laughs> so, um, was that something you just said? That's what I used to respond and say as a kid, that's okay. I hated her that was my child way, you know, um, like, again, as I said before, there was no like therapy, there was no talk of childhood trauma. It was just, I don't know, just carry on. And um, so by 13, when all of that started with my dad and the tightening around, it just got too much. And I ran away from home with my best friend's older brother, who was 18. At that point, Um, once I got caught, my dad didn't want me back again. So I went to live with a family friend who knew both of my parents from where we all lived when I was born, which was in Chelsea Ridge, you know, it was in Dutchess County, but so she took me in, um, she was very strict, you know, I had my first boyfriend, um, you know, we drank as, you know, I grew up upstate New York. We went to parties on the weekends. We had drinks. Um, my, I did have an older boyfriend again. Um, he, he graduated high school when I, he was a senior when I was a freshman. Now I did have other little boyfriends in between, but he, I spent my, almost my entire high school with, like I didn't break up with him until before I became a senior. So he was um, a little abusive and, you know, he would drive all the way to pick me up for school, you know, to make sure I wasn't wearing this or that. Um, 
you know, I don't blame him as an adult. I don't blame him for, you know, we all, we all carry on the toxic traits that, that we are gifted at birth. Unfortunately, I don't have blame for any of that. He's also like the first person that ever like gave me cocaine and LSD. And it wasn't something that became like something I did, you know, it was just random. He definitely How drank a abusive? lot. You said he was abusive. Um, well, what he was do? just not, he, there were some violent instances physically and then, you know, just, I mean, driving to pick your girlfriend up for high school, just so that you can monitor what she is wearing <laughs> is not really, that's abusive, you know, to tell her she can't wear a skirt. Uh, you know, um, I remember a really violent fight over a pair of stretchy leggings, you know, that I bought like on my break at work or something. And um, I don't know. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I didn't want to deal with it anymore and I started seeing someone in my own grade who also could be a little handsy um it seemed that the uh the abusiveness was always there in the background always it was always there and I didn't think (sighs) you have to realize it's like 1992 the year I graduate high school people don't talk about these things your friends know about it but nobody really made a you know it's not like it is now okay let's just put it like about what the abuse yeah they do you know you tell you tell your friends like oh gosh we had a huge fight because i wore leggings but no i don't think anyone realizes how serious it is like that's how it starts you know what i mean like that's the beginning of this person may not be best for me or that maybe there's something wrong with this person you know because you you don't monitor what people wear and things like that you know you don't get violent and hit people and we both had you know you have to realize I had seen a lot of this toxicity growing up like I love my um maternal grandparents to death to death well they're past now but um I feel like I learned a lot of you know just these behaviors that took me years to even break my own self because I didn't realize that I was doing them because that's normal. It was normal to throw out like these little digs and like just these things that are like are really not okay. But each person, like I have said, you know, said we all do the best we can with what we have, just like our parents do. You know, it's not a blame game. It's no one's fault. I just kind of got swept up in, I already had codependent tendencies and they were just always there, whether it's from the upbringing that I saw or whatever the case may be, uh, you know, not feeling, you know, my dad had a lot of women, a lot of girlfriends. There was a lot of a lot of that, you know, and he worked also, he was a single dad and he wasn't really available, I guess. And so this is how the storm begins. By the time I graduated high school, um, I had started experimenting a lot. I had broken away a bit from like some of my more, uh, I would say stable friends, you know, like the ones that we didn't just get like fucked up all the time and moved on to the group of friends who was just, you know, drinking every day after school and then graduating high school, very large year of, you know, acid. And I could remember pinpointing that, you know, doing acid that summer really changed me. I don't ever remember being depressed before that, but I I can mark it in my brain because I, I remember it, you know, I remember it happening that way. And um, 
it stopped as quickly as it started. Um, a friend, the, the boyfriend that I had had my senior year, who I did break up with at the end of that, who passed away from an accidental overdose in 1999, he had said to me about the acid. He said, well, you're going to do it and you're going to like it. And then you're going to not like it. And it's just kind of go, going to go like that. And then you're going to say you're never going to do it again. And it's just going to kind of go like that. And then it really will happen that way that you'll never do it again. And he was right because he'd already been through it. And that's sort of how it went. And then I spent the next couple of years, you know, working full time. I mean, there wasn't like college money for me. Uh, I did receive $10,000 from the death of my mother when I turned 18. Um but it took until I was, I only learned two years ago that my mother uh, died on suicide watch at the hospital. I was told she died of pneumonia. I didn't realize she was actually on suicide watch when she, she hung herself at the hospital and hit her head and ended up in a coma. So that was very <laughs> painful to learn a couple of years ago. <laughs> Luckily, very far into my recovery, but it just still felt so wrong, you know, that, you know, people could hit a deer and get more money for their car. It wasn't really about the money. So I had to placate myself with that. Hopefully this doesn't happen today, you know. So Going I was back working... real quick. Let's take a step back. So I think you said you were 15 when you started getting into drugs and alcohol. What what was what were the main thing? What were you using mostly? It was mostly like just keg parties after school, you know, at, on the weekends, drinking a little bit of pot, although not much. Because I remember um, after moving, after get, you know getting caught and having to move to the new school, I was pretty against that. I actually I broke up with someone for the fact that they smoked pot, which always makes that person laugh to this day because the older person that I decided to date instead was, <laughs> was just well known for, you know, the fact that they did drugs and, you know, I was still young and again, very codependent at the time. And I don't know for a long time, romanticized love or who I thought I could save and fix. And I don't harbor those solutions anymore, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it started with just, you know, just just drinking. This is what upstate kids do, you know, on the weekends we have keg parties and then the cops come and we run from them and you know, you tell your parents you're at one place. So at this point my dad had moved to live with me, but he became the exact opposite of who he was before. So I'd be like, "Oh, I'm going to be at Missy's for the weekend." And he'd be like, "Okay." And I, meanwhile, I'd be like in Jersey with my boyfriend's family or something. You know what I mean? Like I was always not where I was supposed to be, to be, but I did work full time. Um, I got a job at the mall as soon as I could. And I always worked all the way through for as long as I can remember. Um, so graduated high school, stuck around town a little bit. And then my best friend and I decided we wanted to move to Colorado, which was great except for that's when the rave scene was getting pretty heavy and crystal meth is pretty popular out there. <laughs> um, so that happened. And there was this, you know, couple months of, you know, working seven days a week, raving at night, the crystal meth didn't really make you feel like wasted. It just made you feel like you could work seven days a week and keep going and going and going and going. Um, Unfortunately, my one roommate was driving the other roommate 
to work and totaled my car. So we all had to come home. And at that point, I took a step back from anyone that I was connected to from my hometown, spent a few months in my dad's house crying my eyes out, and um, which I assume now are the after effects of doing crystal meth for a few months in a row. And I um, reached out to a friend who was in my circle of friends, but never drank and did drugs. Um, My dad had gotten married uh, for the first time after all of these years. And uh, her children were living in the house. It was a very small apartment. My dad was not kind to those children and it, I couldn't be there. I, I just couldn't, it was an awful feeling. And I, um, that friend, my friend, Michelle's family was nice enough to take me into their house so that I didn't have to, you know, be a part of that. It was really hard to see. And then I felt bad because I wasn't treated like that. And, and I get to dad, realize I was, your dad didn't care. You were living somewhere else. No, I was, this was, I only went back because of the car crashing thing and I was 20 at this point. Okay. So he had gotten remarried and her, two of her youngest kids were living in the apartment with them and he, his treatment towards them, in my opinion, was unacceptable. It used to make me cry and I felt bad and I moved with a friend and her family. We had our plan to move to New Paltz. Um, She was going to be going to college there. Uh, some another friend of mine was as well and I had a job at the diner there so we all rented a house and sometimes I laugh because I'll be like I left like my hometown like I I wanted to get away from the people at home that were doing all of these drugs and I moved to New Paltz of all places but you know it was a good experience and um, is is that known to be a drug scene New Paltz New York oh yeah yeah oh it's in New York it's New Paul. It's New Paul. It's New Paul's New York. Doesn't everyone know it? No. <laughs> no, no, I've never heard of it. I'm from New Jersey. That's why I was saying. Yeah. It's like 90 miles north of Manhattan. It's a college okay. town. It's a college town. I mean, what college town isn't a drug town, right? Yeah, well, this is true. So, um, I don't know. Things were, uh, I would say that I was definitely in my early stages of alcoholism, but didn't really realize it. You know, I was a young girl, 21, 20, 21 years old, going out, um, having fun. You know, it started out like one or two nights a week. And then there was like, I remember there was a, there was just a reason to be out every night, you know, Mondays was like free this and Wednesdays was like seventies night. And, you know, it just kind of escalated up. And then, um, I was single for most of this time because after the last, I just needed to be single. I had spent most of my life in a relationship with somebody, you know, usually treating me like less than, or not so nice, you know? So, um, this is when my first, date rape happened it was not a violent rape so for years I guess you tell yourself it's okay (laughs) that you deserve it you shouldn't have gone home with this person it's the first time I ever went home with someone and I said no and they were not listening to me and I remember this decision in my head and I guarantee you my my ex-roommate remembers it too because I remember thinking like well this is gonna happen anyway He's not stopping. I've said no. I might might as well not even be talking here. And 
it was like a choice, you know, like you just go with it because if you don't go with it, it's happening anyway. So that happened. Had he threatened you? Had he threatened you? Nope. No. And I would say that, you know, this is just a thing that happens, uh, unfortunately too much, you know, um, I don't think just because somebody goes home with someone afterwards, that means that that gives the other person a right to do whatever it is they want. And plus no means no, but that's just not how it was in the nineties. You know, it just wasn't that way. So now guilt and shame is like starting to build up. And then I meet this guy (laughs) who tells me that he's in recovery from heroin. Now you have to realize I'm still totally like a codependent at this point. I still believe with all of my heart, I can save these men if I just love them to death. Well, that wasn't true. He wasn't actually really in recovery at all. And he was, um, he was very abusive. And he told me that if I sold my car and quit my job and we moved to his grandmother's house in Florida, that he would stay sober. And I said, okay, okay. Um, And within a week, he was, you know, dragging me by my hair back to New York to get his drugs. And I got another job at a at a diner and his parents helped us get a place. And then every day I would come home and he would take the money to get high. And after a couple months, or it may not have even been a couple months, I was like, Hey, I want to try that. And I had, I had gotten high. I had been shot up one time um, before this. I got very violently ill. Honestly, I can't even believe I ever did it again. It was a terrible experience. But in any case, um, at, you know, a couple years later now, I'm, I think I'm about 22, 23 at this time. I'm like, well, I want to try that. So it happened very quickly that I remember doing it for like, it was either three or five nights in a row and then waking up and not feeling so well. Um, and then I had an opportunity where someone told me I could stay with them in Florida. So I picked up, I went to detox for three days or five days. My best friend bought me a one-way ticket to Delray Beach, Florida. And that was it. I didn't use heroin again for a long time. Uh, I mean, a couple times randomly throughout, but I became like a full-blown addict when I was 30 once again. When did you go from the drinking to the heroin? The drinking, what was your never, progr- the what drinking was your kind of, the drinking kind of slowed down when I was in the relationship because, like, obviously now I'm not going out every night, and, um, age, and I wasn't drinking. I was what, working. What? What age? Around what age are we talking right now? Twenty two, twenty three. Okay. Very young. The relationship okay. always relationships always seem to keep me out of the bar because, like, why would I? You know what I mean? I mean, ultimately, I guess I was looking for to be loved, you know, and that wasn't going to be at a bar. (laughs) I had already learned that by the age of 22. Um, so, um, I moved to Florida and I didn't do heroin for a long, long time. Um, I was working, um, it was two seas, two years because I would come home to New York for the summertime. And in the, When I was 23, my friend came to visit me from Vegas and we went out to this bar that I used to go to every night because it was like the only night. Um, Now I'm living in Florida. Okay. So I'm not doing heroin anymore, but I'm working in a restaurant and everybody drinks after work. This is just, this is South Florida. Okay. (laughs) This is how it is. So um, 
I, my friend came to visit for New Year's and, um, we went out to this bar that I, it was the only 5am. Most of the bars close at two, but like each area has like one bar that's open. till like six. So we used to go to this bar called the ugly mug. And, uh, you know, it's like the same bartenders all the time. You know, you go to the same place every day, you, you know, you just know them. You're not like sleeping with them. They're, I guess there's, they're they're kind of your friends but not really you know what I mean they're your bartenders it is what it is um I don't remember anything um except for my friend that was with me said that we disappeared myself and this bartender and apparently he had sex with me I don't have any recollection of it whatsoever to this day not even a little snippet of a thrust and uh, shortly after that, I found out I was pregnant and I had only been sleeping with one person prior, but we always used protection. And that was it. I was like, I'm pregnant. And I moved back to New York on my own to stay with my maternal grandparents. And how old are you at this point? 23. So my, daughter was, my daughter was yeah, born when I was 24. You've been through so, a lot by you know, such a young age. And I'm 48 now. So how much worse do you think it gets? <laughs> it, you, doesn't, um, it doesn't get better, my friend. It and does, you, right? you had quit heroin, but you quit heroin while you were pregnant? I was already off the heroin for a couple years. The okay. heroin stopped immediately. I never did heroin in Florida. I left here from detox, went to Florida, and that and the heroin never started. Um, the drinking started. I met someone, you know, I met someone and we moved in together right away. And we both worked really freaking hard. We had a lot of fun work day, uh, work week in Florida is six days a week. So on our one day off a week, we would go to the keys or we just, we drank, we drank a lot, like a lot, lot. And that's what we did. I don't know. We had a lot of fun. I mean, I, I know that's not the proper way to have fun, but when you're 22 and 23 years old, that's just how it was, you know, and you felt like if you were working hard, why not? You know, I, I was always had to pay my own bills and things like that. And that was, you know, work is something that I've always had a good work ethic. And I felt like if I was paying my bills, why not? Like, and I always like to enjoy my life. That's Let's a very common like thing. I did the same thing where I said, I make money. I'm one of the best sales from where I work. Um, etc. Obviously, I don't have a problem. So for some reason, we, we tie our jobs into so much as if we're sober or not. Oh, yeah. I know a lot of people, especially with the alcohol that struggle, because that's like, it's like I do I work hard, especially some of these like real manual labor type friends I have. I mean, they're working their asses off, you know, you're supporting your whole family, you're doing all of the things right. Why can't I have that drink? Well, you know, because once you start getting DWIs and things like that, then it becomes a problem, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's such a fine line too, because if you look at like the criteria of like basing like people on like mild, moderate, severe, you know, alcoholism, drug, you know, whatever the drugs are, it's all different. Uh, it's, it's, it would be really hard to diagnose someone who works every single day, has no problems physically or legally or socially as an actual alcoholic believe it or not <laughs> but, some, some people can get by with it but i mean obviously they're killing themselves inside and yes, most definitely. most of them are putting on a front most of them aren't that happy they just yes. might seem that happy it's true life is hard no they never said it was going to be easy but i don't think anybody ever made it 
<laughs> they yeah. could have given us a little clue though. <laughs> like yeah. a little bit harder. <laughs> Just a little. Uh no. So I came back and I was pregnant. Um, there was no uh doubt in my mind that I was gonna have this baby. I had had one abortion at 18. And uh, I found it to be extremely traumatizing, and it just was how it was. So um, this this trial was a product of the rape that you went through. I will not ever know that because there was never a paternity test done ever, um, unless she decides to speak to me again one day, and we can get that twenty three and me thing done, you know. But um, it didn't matter to me; she was mine. Yeah, <laughs> no, obviously, it. of course. But my grandparents' house was, uh, it was extremely dilapidated. It was not really fit for a child. I was working full-time at a restaurant and my dad and his lovely wife swooped in and said, oh, we'll take her for a little while and, you know, get on your feet. Well, that turned into a fight of me having to literally get my daughter back. During this time, I rekindle things with my high school senior year boyfriend. He wants to get married. This is when I come home pregnant. He wants to marry me. He doesn't care whose baby it is, all of that. And we would always remain really, really very close. He's one of my best friends. But um, he wanted to move down south. And I had the job. And my dad and my, his wife had my daughter. They said, oh, just go down for a couple of months. And then we'll give her back to you. In the, It was like supposed to be December or January or something. Well, Rob went first and during that time I met my ex-husband who would who I would later have another child with and he would continue he would raise my children actually their whole lives but um Rob actually died of an accidental overdose during this time and it was the first you would think that the death of my mother would be the first (laughs) hardest thing for me but this this was hard. <laughs> it was hard for like 30 years. <laughs> now it's not as hard. It just, I remember at the time feeling really. <laughs> strongly that it had to be for something you know yeah i felt like i had to change everything i i can't ever drink again i'm never gonna do drugs again i'm gonna do everything right i'm gonna be this perfect mom because it has to be for something and i did okay at it for a little bit i married david i got my daughter back we got pregnant with my oldest son pretty shortly after. So by the time now I'm 25 and married and I have two kids and my oldest son was, uh, he cried a lot and I had a really hard time. Um, I went back to work. I worked in restaurants like my whole life. Went back to work when he was four weeks old just to get out of the house And I started telling my husband that I wasn't happy. You know, you need, can we work on this? And, you know, whatever the case, I mean, it's not his fault. Um, It is what it is. I went back to work four weeks in and I started 
drinking again, not coming home. I mean, I would come home like right before he had to, <laughs> to go to work to his like actual real job as like a math actuary. Um, I tried the best I could. I remember feeling like I felt like somebody like plopped me in this position. It was like, go except for I had like absolutely no and I'm not using it as an excuse I remember it vividly and now I understand it now that I've been in recovery for so long that I really didn't know what I was doing because no one had ever I had never been a part of like a two-person family or really a family like I just didn't I was an only child there was just so many um things that I was not tools I didn't know how to be any of those things um so I chose what I chose we split up well he technically took off with my son he couldn't take my daughter because she's not his biologically um when I was at work one day and we went our separate ways I tried to get him to go to marriage counseling he wouldn't speak he did everything he could to make it you know I at first I had my daughter and he had my son. I worked nights still. It didn't seem right. It seemed silly that she should be going to a babysitter at night because that wasn't going to change anytime soon. I was a waitress, bartender, lifer person. This is what I my career was. And there's no day job, you know what I mean, where you're going to make a couple hundred dollars during the day in New Falls, New York. And I had that job, but it was, an, it was night. So I let her go be with him and um he got married again really quickly and made it a little difficult he used to let me see the kids every week at my own expense um during this time I got involved in a relationship with someone that was much younger than me and started doing a lot of cocaine with the drinking and that's it everything went to hell uh I lost the good job um I lost the good job. Um, I was still seeing my kids once a week, gave up my apartment, followed this idiot to New York City, got a place in Brooklyn, struggled to find a job for a couple years because I didn't have New York City experience. Um, and then, so he was a little abusive. He used to cheat a lot. He was one of those like, you know, um, just so you know, we're never going to be like really together, you know years are going by and he's still right I love you so much don't leave me every time I would start to leave he would always but there was a lot of cheating and because of what I felt I had done to destroy my marriage and family I took that shit all of it I was like I deserve it this is my karma and and I'm gonna take it (laughs) and I'm gonna keep taking it I have no idea why um so a lot of drinking and then the cocaine that went on for like a couple years it was bad you know um he like I'd come back from seeing my kids and he would like I've already called the dealer and he'd shoot it we would shoot cocaine and the amounts that he would put in there used to scare the shit out of me it's one of the only times I ever thought I was actually gonna die is from shooting cocaine um my whole body just broke out in a sweat and my heart started beating so fast and probably one of the last times I ever did it because it was that scary. I was always very aware that I didn't want to leave my children with a dead mother. I felt that I was not a good mother 
and but that's a very far cry from like knowing that they could call me if if and when they had these questions you know that that I clearly was never going to have answered for myself so you um you had switched to using a needle yep yep yeah, well, made, I used the needle. I used the needle. Switch. I used the needle with the heroin in my early, you know, in my early twenties. Okay. So I was already used to the needle, and I don't know why we decided to shoot the cocaine. I can't remember if the heroin had already started, but somehow, somewhere along the line, because I remember it as like this specific day in my brain where I picked up the. Uh, phone I knew something was wrong I can always tell he was always cheating on me um and I guess he had been carrying on this relationship for like a couple months all while I'm like living in his apartment basically well we call it living but really it's every time my mom comes over you have to hide on the roof so after like being in a relationship like that for years and years which is basically like someone telling you every single day you're not you're a piece of shit you're not good enough to even be seen (laughs) it, it takes its toll um but I remember standing on the corner of 14th and 7th and calling my friend who had been in like a lifelong heroin addict because I just wanted to die. I did. I wanted to die. But I was like, I can't fucking kill myself. I can't do that to these kids. I have to at least be walking around somewhere, breathing somehow for whatever reason. That was a strong conviction of mine. Um you know, when I look back now, it's so silly because it's like you're dead anyway, you know, but I understand why I felt that way because of what I went through, as, you know, as a child with my own mother. But it's um, amazing that it kept you alive. That's all that matters at that point is if it was keeping you alive or not. So I called uh, my friend and got some heroin and that was it. Next thing I know, you've got me and the boyfriend. Uh, it was like not- I feel like it probably started in 2003 or four, the heroin addiction. So it's like very short, like the cocaine kind of just stopped because like the heroin like took over, but there must've been some overlap there that I just can't remember. You know what I mean? Cause I don't know why the needles would, they wouldn't have been there if we hadn't been doing the other thing first. So, yeah. but um, yeah, I made the call. I got the heroin. I felt better. <laughs> managed to hold down a couple of jobs you know like I I know I was fooling myself but I could safely say that even even now I look at pictures and I'm like no one would have ever known you know I just doled out the needle shots like like medicine a couple times a day in the bathroom at work and and I did what I had to do and I came up to see my kids once a week (laughs) we had nowhere to be my grandparents house was like completely condemned at this point so I'd have to pay for my bus ticket up here and then take my kids out to dinner. Um, you know, I'm very behind on child support still. Um, you know, it's disgusting the amount of money that I made. Um, so this goes on for quite a long time and I did go to detox a few times. Um, they don't let you stay for rehab if you don't have insurance. I can't tell you how many times I've heard things like scholarship and this and that. Well, it never worked out that way for me. I would be begging them, please don't let me leave. Please let me stay. Because I, I don't sleep during detox. Like, I don't know how people do, but I could never sleep. And it would always do me in after five, six days of being awake. I couldn't, I could never handle it. I've quit cold turkey and gone back for the reason of sleep alone. Um, 
and it wasn't like it is now. Um, they just put you back out on the street. They didn't care. They didn't help you get, you know, whatever it was to get to the next level. Um, I definitely feel like I fell through the cracks in like a really big way. Um, but I don't, you know, you know, all I can do with that now is use my voice and hope that it, you know, gets better. Which Did you <laughs> try calling I... anyone else? What? Did you try calling anyone else or just them? I didn't really. What do you mean? Never mind. Keep going. Keep going. Um, so in 2011, I went to a rehab. I went to a rehab and I met someone. Uh-huh. And I ended up getting pregnant. And um, I did not, clearly was not in the shape to be having a baby. I was homeless. Um, the long-term boyfriend's parents had just moved him to Alaska. So he left, I was homeless. I I lived with him. And so I was left homeless <laughs> on the streets of New York City with nowhere to go and no one to call. And um, so I went to rehab. Found that I was pregnant, hooked up with this guy for a little while who neither one of us had any business even being in a relationship at all. And then when, and I kept saying to myself, like, I'm not going to, they tell you if you stop using that you're going to lose your baby, you'll get, have a miscarriage. I was put on the methadone program like two weeks before he was born and um I worked like really hard this whole time, like not to develop like an attachment. I'm like, he's going to have to go for adoption. I clearly can't. I mean, now I've, you know what I mean? I'm not had the best luck here. You know, my ex-husband is Scott, Maya, Matthew. And um, then he was born and I saw him. And I would have done anything to be better. So I did. I did what they told me to do. I called my, um, they told me that if I went to an inpatient, a pregnant women's with children inpatient, you know, that he would come there and live with me. But he needed somewhere to be for 30 days first. So I called my stepsister who agreed to take him for the 30 days. So I'm living in this place with all these women and their newborn babies and some of them are getting fucked up still and I'm doing everything right, everything right. And it comes to 30 days court and they're like, Ulster County's like, eh, we think we're going to wait 60 days. And I'm like, okay, okay. So I go back. Same shit comes around. 90 days comes around. 90 day court case comes around and they say, you know what? We've... <sighs> We've decided, you know, now we're going to want 90 days. So, you know, it was 30, 60, and now they're saying 90. At the same time, I was asked, because I was doing so stellar at rehab, right, uh, to take someone to a funeral, you have to, you can't go anywhere alone. She already had her newborn baby with her. She asked me if I want to get high. I'm like, okay. You know, at this point, I'm totally defeated. I'm not making excuses for it. I was fucking defeated. <laughs> I'm living there with all these newborn babies. They clearly were fucking with me because 30 days is a huge difference between 30 and 90 days. Okay. Um, so it's happening this way. And they, um, 
they find out and they say, uh, we're going to let you stay, but you need to tell us who gave you the drugs. And I would not do that because I'm staring at this other woman and her little baby who she had in the program, who now I know what she'll be going through, right? They're going to rip her fucking baby right the fuck out of her arms. And I don't know who could do that, but it wasn't me. It wasn't going to be me. And that was it. It was in the wind for years. And it was the last years from 2011 to 2014 were the absolute worst years of my life. I have still a lot of anger towards the judge up here. I was lucky to get blessed with another child in 2014 that no one has ever tried to take away from me. Although CPS did drive me crazy for five years and never, ever, 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 ever left me alone until 2020 when he was five. <laughs> my stepsister uh, does not never allow me to see my child. And I was homeless. So a year after this, that judge, that same judge, I've had her since I got divorced in 2000, by the way. Same judge the whole time, same public defender. The one who gave my son to my sister um, tells me that if I don't pay $90 a week child support, I'm going to jail. So I started, uh, I answered an ad on the back of the village voice and started escorting. And, and it took me six years of recovery to even begin to work through the shame and, and misery that that whole lifestyle it was not take it could be worse you know I know it could be worse but you know when you're alone out there you're working for all these like filthy rich people sometimes you see them on tv because they're like fucking famous and shit and you would do anything to to just be able to go to rehab, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just be able to, like, have, to not be a heroin addict. Um, it was hard. And then I came up here in 2014, back up to New Paltz, because my grandpa, the property that was condemned, I, his neighbor was like a, kind of like a long-term friend. I don't want to get into it, but... um. I was up here trying to get clean round 5,067. <laughs> and um, my, uh, there was this guy that I had hung out with a couple times, but never slept with. He was a little too nice for me. Uh, you know, a little too nice for me. Him and his sister, God rest her soul, because she's dead now. Um, they picked me up in the middle of the night from where I was. And, um, they just kind of like didn't let me leave and he just sort of like I like verbal diarrhea like everything that I had just been through you know like the escorting the max the child all of it I don't know and he just loved me anyway when I tried to leave I was like yeah I think I'm gonna go now he was like nah you're not going anywhere he just like loved me back to health and you know he had two twin sisters they both chose suicide in 2020 
It has not been an easy recovery by any means. <laughs> no, it doesn't <laughs> sound know? like it. It has not been an easy recovery by any means. And it's hard sometimes not to get stuck in those like thoughts of like, are you serious? Like, are you know, like, are you serious? Because you have to realize that I never recovered from my life, like my childhood. So coming into recovery, and I think like most people think like, oh, we're just, I'm going to stop doing this drug, right? That I need to have, or I can't get up out of bed. And that was nothing. That was the easiest part of the recovery. <laughs> the hardest part was, you know, coming to terms with these things that I did, being able to look in the mirror again. Thank God. That was one thing I always used to say to myself when I was like out there using, I'd say, I got to be able to look at myself in the mirror at the end of the day, you know, in all those rich clients, houses, I was never like, oh, I think I'm going to steal a bunch of shit. It's just not who I am. It was always going to be me hurting me. Um, that's, and I'm grateful for that. You know what I mean? Because I can look in the mirror. I'm not saying I'm perfect. Of course, I've done silly things. And, but for the most part, I did everything I could to protect everyone around me and just took the brunt of it. Um, so it was a lot to get through and it's still a lot to go through, you know, like, uh, what is it? So he, my son's dad, my youngest son's father, uh, had been in an accident in 2011. So he was put on pain pills and his mother died in 2017. And then that got out of control. So now there's like two of us here in recovery. You know, he's been on Suboxone ever since all that into raising a child, a healthy, happy child at the same time. I don't know. I've been in long-term group therapy since 2014, uh, two to three times a week. And now I'm just finishing my KSAC school that I've, I wanted to do since I was in high school. So it's not like some new thing for me. You know, I really want to help, you know, domestic violence and sexual trauma survivors. It's passion, it's passion for me. And it's something that we don't talk about. You know what I mean? Like nobody really talks about it. People are starting to talk about it, but like it's so much more common than anyone wants to believe, you know? Yeah. And it's a lot. So, you know, I just stay positive and do the best I can. I did get to start speaking to my dad again because um, his wife sort of kept us, I guess, apart really for like years and years and years and years. Um, it's such a, you know, it's like a really messed up, it's like a Jerry Springer, her daughter accused my dad of inappropriate touching. I don't know. I was not there. I only can speak for myself and that never happened to me. And, you know, it's hard for me to connect with my family. I have a large extended family, but I've been absent from them so long. I have an awkwardness about me. I don't feel like I fit in like anywhere, you know? So I just had to, you know, I made my own. I have a really tiny family. It's like me. Jesse and my son Blaze, my older kids still don't speak to me at all. And that is hard, you know, but it is a repercussion of my actions that I got to live with. <laughs> and give it time. Like they say, time heals all wounds. Things mm -hmm. come around. You keep just doing the right thing, things will come around. Yeah, that's what they say, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I do take medication, um, not the kind that most people would think, but, uh, you know, I appreciate that my, uh, you know, 
one thing that we're learning, everyone, right, is that, you know, recovery is not one size fits all. It's different for everybody. You know, our brains get permanently rewired, damaged, we could say, right? Damaged mm-hmm. my own brain. Um, and sometimes we need help with that. Sometimes it has to be forever. And not everyone is the same. So what works for one may not work for another. When I would um, come back from those methadone when I was pregnant with Max, every day I would barf the methadone in the driveway. I used Suboxone to get sober. You give me two, two milligrams of Suboxone and I look like I just shot up 15 bags. You know what I mean? Like everyone is different. You know, I think that pain is a bitch and I do believe that people should have access to the things that they need. It's not always about want. Sometimes it is about need, you know, and I don't know if you've taken a look around, but a lot of lives are lost still every day with suicide and drug overdose. And it's really sad. So I appreciate what you're doing, you know, um, because unless the stories are heard, nothing ever changes. Exactly. People need to hear our stories. Mm-hmm. That's the name of a book. I wrote a book that's going to be out in a month or two. And the name of it is Addicts Anonymous, Our Stories. Because the second half of the book is just like the AA book where it's people's it's collection stories. Nice. Yeah. I didn't do AA, and I, but I will tell you, I did eventually stop drinking. I just just didn't align with like I figured when this started I was like okay I just don't want to be like addicted to heroin anymore that's it for me I'll like party for life right (laughs) like die with like tequila in my hand no it just sort of fell away you know like it just you know now it's you know cigarettes are definitely a problem (laughs) you know but it's been a few years I can't remember my last drunk that that way doesn't work for me keeping track paying too much attention I'm one of those people who just has to like not think about it and do it me me too so I did it has been um, a few years since I had a drink Um, and I'm proud of that because I never that was never you know what I mean like I really never never a possibility I just, it wasn't even like a desire. Like I, I didn't, you know, like I, it was, it was well past, you know, it's, you know, I don't know. I just figured I'd always would here and there have a couple glasses of wine or whatever. But then after so much recovering goes by and then being in these groups and hearing these stories and then learning the science and, and then the liver thing, you know, I, again, I contracted hep C from using and when my liver started to go, it was eye-opening I don't think anyone realizes what happens when that happens and I was lucky to get the treatment but because of that I will never drink again because it was I felt like I was dying you know and I would never want to you know disrespect the just the fact that I was even able to get the treatment because they didn't want to give it to me before I was they made me wait until I was like sick (laughs) gotta love that Medicaid (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's terrible. I apologize. I was really hoping I'd be able to get through it without the tears. Um, no, you did a great job. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank Let you. Let me ask you one last question. Mm-hmm. Do you have advice for people watching and listening? The best thing I can say is that the power is inside of you. It's in you. It's not in any person... It's, it's not even really like in any book, although reading the books 
helps mindfulness prayer whatever it is that you you know it helped me to learn about myself to learn about the why perhaps I had you know some of these statistics like people that are abandoned by their parents uh, a lot of times tend to abandon children because they don't know another way so the more I educated myself about my own self the healthier and the more clear things became and then the shame and all of that started to drift away once the shame was able to start drifting away and I was able to realize that I am a good person and I'm worthy of love and all of that thing. And it's not, but it's also not about blame. You know, you take accountability for it. And as hard as it is, you do have to let go of the anger. Like I had mentioned with the the judge, that is a really hard thing for me because she's an official capacity, but it's, and, but I do realize it's not about her. letting go of those pains it's all for you the more work you do on you on only you that's how you get there that my last two years of recovery and it's been since 2014 have been like warp speed and that's all I did I started reading more and paying more attention to what I could do to help myself and the groups you know the therapy the therapy is key because I have not met an addict yet who does not have some sort of trauma or underlying anxiety, mental illness issue. And there is no shame in that. There is no shame in it at all. That is the key. Thank you for that. So do you have anything else that you want to add? No, thank you so much. I'm just really grateful. As hard as it is, sometimes being alive every day when so many people and I know I'm not the only one losing people by the droves over here or not it's always a gift so just thank you so much for having me no it was a pleasure it really was so sit tight for me and for everybody watching and listening if you like what you heard and saw go below and give us a like also subscribe to see when we upload new videos You could also check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Tumblr, Facebook, TikTok, pretty much every social media platform, and uh, also Instagram. Forgot to mention that one. You can also check out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you will find plenty of free, uh, free literature as well as some resources. And that's all we have for today. So once again, I hope you enjoyed. And until next time.